reading of God's Word this morning. And as you are standing, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We are continuing to plod through Paul's first letter to Timothy. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we are right here finally to the tail end of 1 Timothy chapter 4. So I'm going to read in your hearing, beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please, brothers and sisters, find your seat. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion these days over what exactly a pastor is. And this is true, I think, of both people outside the church as well as those inside the church. We we all sort of have our own ideas about what a pastor is or what a pastor should do. But like in all things, we must be vigilant to make sure that our ideas are not detached from the word of God. Of God. So, for example, some are persuaded a pastor is really just a coach, or a caregiver, or a CEO. Others think pastors are just there for the big events of life, to marry, to bury, sort of like you kind of have the pastor on retainer for these big events. Then there are those who simply assume that a pastor exists to be an event coordinator or a skit producer or a motivational speaker. And you have to understand, while all of these are not mutually exclusive, they are all in competition with one another. Now, to make matters even worse, you have entire denominations who have gone soft on actually defining what a pastor is. The Southern Baptist Convention, ostensibly a conservative, Bible-believing denomination. They made headlines over the summer because on the floor of their national convention, they were unable to determine whether or not the office of pastor was reserved for qualified men or if that same office was open to women as well. Now, on top of this, there are some who even question the whole enterprise, They they sort of shake their heads and they go, well, does this even matter? Aren't pastors, ministers, even churches, isn't all of this stuff just a bit outdated anyway? Pastors, they're just sort of a dying breed. Do we really need to spend any time or energy thinking through these things? For many, 
they view this whole thing as sort of like dinosaurs. Pastors are an extinct species. And I suppose that in some ways there is truth to that. Recognize that there was a time, at least culturally speaking, when those like clergy were actually held in pretty high regard. But today you will notice they are often the butt of many jokes. And while it's true that pastors sort of have a bad rap, it's also equally true that pastors haven't done anything to help their cause. In many ways, they only add fuel to the fire by, coming, by becoming parodies of themselves. So at one level, it seems that many Christians can't tell you what a pastor is. And then at another level, many wonder if that's really such a big deal. Enter our passage. These words from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, they come as fresh air to our otherwise polluted lungs. And that's because they lay out quite clearly not just what a pastor is, but how important pastors are. In fact, you might think of it this way. Our passage this morning, it gives us something of a portrait, a portrait of a pastor. When the rubber meets the road, day in and day out, how does Scripture describe a pastor? Well, let me give you three words, three words that help color in our portrait. Here are those words, dedication, devotion, and determination. That's how our passage is going to answer the thorny question, what is a pastor? Let's begin with a pastor's dedication. I want you to notice that verse 11 opens with both barrels. Timothy is to what? Command and teach these things. That is to say, he is to raise his voice. He is to speak with authority. He is to make plain what God has said. And he is to do so about these things. Now, to be clear, these things in verse 11, they probably refer back to what Paul laid out last week in verses 6 through 10, which means, more specifically, Timothy is to proclaim the truth of God's Word. He is to, you will remember, train himself for godliness he is to reject the false teaching that has infected the congregation. And he is to call the congregation to walk in faithfulness before Christ. That is what he is, verse 11, to command and teach. There's just one problem. And the problem is that Timothy is a young buck. It seems that he doesn't have enough gray hair and he doesn't have enough wrinkles and so the congregation seems less than thrilled to lend this young man his, their ears. You see this in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. And so it seems pretty clear that Timothy is getting some pushback because of his age. We have to understand that this culture, the culture in Ephesus in the first century, it was in a lot of ways opposite from ours. And that is because in a culture like theirs, one where they actually valued the elderly, they actually considered those older than them to have some life experience and some maturity and some wisdom. We have to understand that in a culture like that, Timothy's full head of hair, it was sort of a stumbling block. 
We don't know exactly how old Timothy was, but he was probably somewhere in his 30s. And that's a pretty young age for a man to be occupying this sort of position. Remember, Ephesus was like a cultural center in the ancient world. Perhaps those in Ephesus responded to Timothy the way an elderly woman responded to Herbert Palmer. Herbert Palmer was a Puritan who was called to preach to a French-speaking congregation in Canterbury, England. The story goes that Palmer was apparently quite a short little man. And to make matters worse, he was as young as he was short. He had just graduated from Cambridge University. And so on the first Sunday, when he climbed those winding steps into the pulpit, an elderly woman made her opinion known very loudly for the entire congregation to hear. She said, alas, what shall this child say to us? Well, the question is, how ought, of, how ought Herbert Palmer to have responded to that? How ought Timothy to respond to this whole thing? There's a couple of options. You can throw your weight around. You can get defensive. You can put your finger in people's chests. You can show off the degrees on your wall. There's, there's all kinds of things that you can do. Notice how Paul counsels him. Middle of verse 12. But set the believers an example. Timothy, young man, the way that you overcome this is by setting an example. So before we get too far lost in the weeds, what is the pastor to be dedicated to? Please hear this. He is to be dedicated to living a life worthy of emulation. The pastors of a church, they are to be a living example of what Christian maturity looks like, looks like in the life of the congregation. Those in the congregation should, should look to their pastors and say, well, I want to follow these men because these men walk tightly with Christ. But you notice that Paul is not content to simply leave things vague. Because he specifically says in verse 12, to set the believers an example and to do so in what? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, the totality of the minister's life is to be given over to Christ. When we think of his speech... We're not just talking here about the way that the minister proclaims the gospel or how he preaches, though that's obviously important. But it's more general. The speech here has to do with, well, how does he talk with his wife? How does he speak to his children? How does he interact with his neighbors? What's his speech like with the cashier at Yoke's? You see, the pastor is to be one who speaks the truth in love. And his words should be kind and gentle, and they should be baptized into the truth of God's word. But as we noted last week, the pastor is no talking head. He is also to set an example, verse 12, in conduct. So the way that he lives his life, the places that he goes, how he responds, why he does what he does, how he spends his money, his priorities. This is all to be given over to Christ, and it is all to be an example for Christians. 
The pastor is also to be worthy of emulation when it comes to, verse 12, love. Though imperfectly, nevertheless, the pastor ought to strive to love the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he ought to seek to love his neighbor as himself. The pastor should be a man known for love. So often, pastors are known for being prickly, like a porcupine. That's not the picture that we see in the Scriptures. Love should ooze forth from the pores of the pastor. Scripture then goes on to say the pastor must set the believers an example in faith. In faith. So the pastor then is one who himself personally trusts in and relies upon Christ. He doesn't just know about Christ, he knows Christ. He loves Christ. He desires to be near to Christ. His life is wrapped up in and with and by Christ. And then finally, God's Word tells us the pastor is to be a model of purity. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's not checking out skirts. He's not given over to pornography or to lust. Instead, his relationship with his wife, it is one that is marked by love and trust and purity. All of his relationships with women inside the church and outside of the church, they are to be above board. Church, that is what the pastor is dedicated to. In his speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, he is to be, he must be a man worthy of emulation. Because the scriptures are clear, his life, the life of the pastor, is the life to be followed. So he should be able to say, Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. To use Peter's language, he is a man not domineering over those in his charge, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5.3 He is, Titus 2.7, a model of good works. He really can echo the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 when the Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So church, first and foremost, the pastor is a man of dedication. He is dedicated to living his life in a way not only that pleases Christ, but one that also models maturity for the congregation. That's the first color that makes up this portrait. The second is this. He is a man of devotion. Specifically, he is devoted to the Word of God. Look at the language in verse 13. We are told, Paul to Timothy, this young pastor, until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. If you remember, to the very beginning of this letter, this is why Paul has dispatched Timothy and put him there in Ephesus. It is Timothy's job to set things in order. And so while Paul wishes that he could be there with Timothy to help, Paul has his hands full elsewhere. So what is Timothy to be doing in the interval as he is waiting for Paul to return to Ephesus and help him? How is he to occupy his time? 
Has Timothy been dispatched to host VBS or to organize a citywide initiative to help pick up trash along the highway? Or, or maybe he ought to spend his time uh, forming an alliance with the local Republican caucus. What is it that Timothy is to be doing? Now, brothers and sisters, I don't mean to suggest that those things are evil or that they're even wrong. That's not the point. The point is that the pastor has been commissioned with very specific instructions so that his time and energy, his bandwidth, all of his resources, they are to be leveraged for the sake of the Word of God. That's what Paul means there when he says, devote yourself. It doesn't mean have one foot in and one foot out. It means that you need to be given over to this thing. So what is this thing? What is this devotion to? Well, it is being devoted to three word-centered works. Three word-centered works. Reading, exhorting, and teaching. I would suggest that the most neglected of these word-centered works is the first, the public reading of Scripture. Interestingly enough, those four words, public reading of Scripture, it is just one word in the original Greek. And it's a technical term that refers to what happened in the Jewish synagogue service when a man would stand up and simply read aloud a portion of the law or the prophets in the hearing of the congregation. Now, the Christian church, as you can tell from 1 Timothy 4, it adopted this same practice. And I would also point out to you that this is a command. It is not a suggestion. The scriptures do not say, if you have nothing else to do, then maybe read God's word. Devote yourself to this pastor. When the church gathers, the scriptures should be read aloud. Now, historically speaking, we know why this was the case. We need to keep in mind that in the first century, you didn't have just copies of God's word hanging around on your nightstand. In fact, they were very few and far between. If you wanted to hear God's word... You actually had to gather with the people of God and hear God's word read. On top of that, we should note that historically speaking, the illiteracy rates were much higher then than they are now. And by that, I mean at least among us here this morning. So again, not only did you have a copy of God's word lying around, but but you also, even if you did, you probably weren't able to read it. And so what were the people of God to do if they wanted to hear from God? They were to gather. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to read Scripture, guy. You've got to make sure this is a priority. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Now, given all of this, some would argue that in our day and age, because we do have copies of God's Word and because we can read English, that 1 Timothy 4.13 really has nothing to say to us. I, however, would argue the exact opposite. And I say that because with the plethora of good English Bible translations available, not to mention the relatively cheap cost of actually owning a Bible or the countless apps or websites where you can read God's Word for free, 
despite all of that, it is actually pretty discouraging to realize how many illiterate Christians there are in the church today. Large swaths of Christians, despite the blessing of having Scripture in their own tongue, so many really have no grasp of God's Word. Perhaps equally troubling, or another way to say it would be perhaps symptomatically speaking, it's troubling how many Christians there are who gather for worship, this might sting a little bit, but do so without their copy of God's Word. How many Christians come into church five minutes late with a cup of coffee in their hand and no Bible in the other? Brothers and sisters, that ought not to be so. That ought not to be so. So because of this, and because God's Word commands it, when we gather, Scripture ought to be read, and it ought to be read aloud in the hearing of the people of God. Which is why I want you to know that one of the things that the elders have been discussing for quite a while, and one of the things that we devoted ourselves to with our elders retreat just a couple of weeks ago, is what it would look like in our congregation to add Scripture readings throughout our services of worship. Historically, the Reformed tradition have had at least one additional Scripture reading which mirrored the passage that was being read in the morning. In other words, if the New Testament was being preached from that morning, then a corresponding Old Testament passage would be read from. And this was not just to fill time. It is because the Reformed have found it valuable for the people of God to hear both Old and New Testament alike each Lord's Day. So like I said, we are currently praying and, and thinking through what that would look like in our context. And I, and I bring it up now just to say that, just really to invite you to join with the elders in prayer. We, we want to honor God. We want to obey His Word. And so encourage us and pray for us to do that. I want you to notice that pastors are called to, do, to, called to do more than simply read God's Word, though. Because verse 13 carries on, he is also to be devoted to exhortation, verse 13. That means part of the pastor's responsibility is not just to read God's Word, but wait for it, to call the congregation to obey it, to warn, to rebuke, to correct, there are some people that think the pulpit of the Christian church should be one where nothing naughty is ever said, where we're only upbuilt, where we get our sort of spiritual high for the day. And no doubt there's a place for that. We ought to be encouraged. But God's word calls God's men to exhort God's people, to obey God's word, to apply it to their lives, to live in light of it. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, teaching everyone and warning everyone, admonishing everyone, exhorting everyone. So this is the pastor's job. I want you to know, congregation, that it is not enough for you as a Christian to gather with God's people and to simply learn or, or grasp some factoids about the Bible. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you are a Christian who gathers to merely garner factoids about the Bible, that you are actually operating in a very dangerous way. And I say that 
Because you may very well be inoculating yourself to the truth. According to James, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And James goes on to say, if we are merely hearers only and not also doers, then we, James 1.22, deceive ourselves. And so just as the pastor is called to read scripture and to exhort, so you as a Christian are called to hear and respond. It's not enough, brothers and sisters, if you and I can win at Bible trivia. Are we following the word of God? Are we orienting our lives around what God has revealed to us? So the pastor will read God's word, and he will say, this is the way, walk in it. And then he will be devoted to teaching, end of verse 13. It simply means that the pastor will explain what the passage is saying. Like the Ethiopian eunuch who didn't understand what he was reading, So Christ has given to the church pastors and teachers to help explain God's word. Which means that pastors in a church are not called simply to master the word, but to be mastered by the word. And to be mastered by the word so that then the people of God can learn to understand the word. Brothers and sisters, this is the devotion that a pastor ought to have. He had to be devoted to reading Scripture, to exhorting from Scripture, and to teaching Scripture. This is to be the man of God's all-consuming passion. This is what he is about, and this is what he must be about. He cannot, verse 14, neglect this work. You notice in verse 14 that, that Paul cautions timid Timothy. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul is saying, in effect, Timothy, this is what you have been called to do. Don't shy away from this. God made this clear by prophecy, and the elders, they have affirmed all of this. They they have publicly acknowledged that you were qualified for this. So, Timothy, I, I know that you're fearful. I know that you're a little bit afraid. I know that just sort of by natural disposition that you are one who tends to sort of let off. But you've got to lean in, Timothy. You can't neglect this. As verse 15 says, you have to practice these things. You have to immerse yourself in them. Just pause and notice the force of these verbs. Feel the weight of them. Verse 13, devote. Verse 15, practice. Verse 15, immerse. There's nothing passive about this, is there? Nothing casual about it. This is not a hobby. You you know the type. Someone who sort of tinkers with an instrument, like it's like a side gig when they have time, they might strum a little bit on the guitar. Paul is saying, no. The word of God must be the all-consuming passion of the man of God. He must be devoted to the word. And he must be devoted to the word so that... He would grow. Verse 15 again, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your, here's the word, progress. 
this is what the pastor is striving toward, and this is what he is leading the congregation toward, progress. We might say growth in grace. What is progress but a deeper love for Christ? What is progress but but a longing in your soul to more fully obey Christ? What is progress but a growing fear of and joy in Christ? Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is, pastor, and I would say congregation, be so devoted to the word of God that it actually changes you from the inside out. Well, church, we've been trying to wrestle with the question, what is a pastor? And while I think that there is a fair, about, a fair amount of confusion in our day, I, I think Scripture is actually pretty clear with all of this. In our portrait, he is a man of dedication and devotion. And I would simply add our final stroke of color. He is a man of determination. Pick it up with me in verse 16. Paul says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What is this verse getting at? The pastor must be a man who is determined to do what? In short, to keep a close watch on his life and on his teaching. That's what Scripture is getting at there in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Make sure, pastor, that you don't run aground and make shipwreck of your faith, like Hymenaeus and Alexander did back in 1 Timothy 1.20. Let me ask you, what's one way that a pastor or just a congregant could make shipwreck of their faith? I'll give you one word, hypocrite. I think that's what, that's what Paul is getting at here. Keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Make sure that your life and your lips match. The pastor's duty and doctrine must be in sync. His practice and preaching should complement one another. This is why, you remember last week we saw in verse 7, the emphasis upon training for godliness. Why is it so important for the pastor and the Christian to train for godliness? I would submit to you this, because one of the overwhelming temptations for the man of God and for the church of God is that the Sunday version of us is different than the Monday version. And so the exhortation is, Pastor, be determined that there is no chasm between your public and your private life. No gap between preaching and practice. So he says in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, how you live, and on the teaching, the the things that you say. And again, this is true of all Christians alike. We must work, Christians, so that our lives are not divorced from what we say, what we sing, what we profess, what we say on Sunday mornings. 
They ought to be in concert with the way that we live. Why? Because if not, you run the risk of unsaying with your lives what you say with your lips. You can say one thing. You can witness to that coworker. You can evangelize your neighbor. You can hand out tricks at, tr- tracks at the park. You, you can be a super Christian on Sunday. But back to verse 12. If your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, if that stuff is all out of whack come Monday, people will not be able to hear your words over the sound of your life. This is no doubt one of the common complaints that the unbelieving world has with the Christian church. And it is one that we should probably pay attention to. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. Now this is especially important when it comes to the pastor. I say that because put your eyes once again on verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this... For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now step back for a second, because this is kind of weird. Why must Timothy persist? Why must he be determined to keep a close watch on his life and on his teaching? Because, end of verse 16, he will... Here's that word, save both himself and his hearers. Now, I will grant you, at first glance, uh, we might balk at this. And we might even balk at it rightly so. As those who are zealous for Christ's glory, as as those who, who care about the gospel, does verse 16, at least not on a first pass, does it not smack of heresy? I mean, after all, isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How can Paul, the champion, no doubt, of sola gratia and sola fide and solus Christus, how can Paul tell Timothy that salvation depends upon, well, him? How does this work? Well, first things first. And here we must be abundantly clear. Salvation is, I repeat, is, 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 and is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is. That is why Christ was born. That is why Christ has come to the world. We remember the faithful and trustworthy saying, the one that is deserving of full acceptance, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. This is why Christ was born. Christ was born to die. He was born to come to earth on a rescue mission to save sinners like you and I from the judgment that we rightly deserve. And he saves us from that punishment by being punished in our place. Full stop. No ifs, ands, or buts. Christ and Christ alone is the Savior. Church, this is what is happening on the cross. This is what makes the cross of Christ such a scandal. This is what makes it such good news. Because the perfect and holy and spotless eternal Son of God, He is treated as a sinner. He is treated as you and I deserve to be treated for our sins. 
This is why on the cross he is cursed of God. The wrath of God is placed upon Jesus as our substitute. And then, three days later, Christ emerges forth from the grave, and he does so in victory. He does so in victory over sin and death and hell. Brothers and sisters, he does so in victory over our greatest enemies. And then the promise is made to the whole world. It's made to each and every one of us. If you and I would turn from our sin, and our sin is our lawless rebellion to God. If we would turn from our sin and turn toward Christ, and if we would embrace Him as He is offered to us in the gospel, that means if we would do so by faith and by faith alone, then not only will all of our sins be forgiven, but the very righteousness of Christ is credited to you. And, if that wasn't good enough, just like Christ, you too will overcome the grave. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise. That's not news, that's good news. Here's the scandalous part, though. The scandalous part is that all of that news, all of that good news, it is all, every single drop from the ocean is all gift. It's all owing to grace alone, sola gratia. It is all owing to Christ and Christ alone, solus Christus. And this good news, it doesn't come to us. It doesn't become ours when we finally clean up our act. When we finally quit sinning that one pesky sin. It doesn't come to us even once we finally started to look or act like a Christian. No. We actually lay hold of this good news. We lay hold of Christ and forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life the moment that we believe. The moment that we lift up our empty hands and plead for mercy and forgiveness from God in Christ. Sola fide. This is utterly scandalous. Pharisees hate this. Church people hate this. Religious people hate this. The biggest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry were people like us. People that grabbed their Bibles and went to church every single day and thought that we were righteous because of what we did. And then Jesus says, no, I actually count the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners. These are the ones that are right in my sight. Not because of who they are, but because they recognize their sin and they trust in Christ. The good news of the gospel is truly scandalous to you and I if we are holding to even an ounce of our own self-righteousness. Because the gospel and self-righteousness are bitter enemies. They're bitter enemies. That's all true. And as Christians, we are to stake our very lives upon those truths. The gospel is the miles and miles deep foundation that upholds each and every one of us. But 
And here is Paul's point in verse 16. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God uses means even to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And one of those means is faithful pastors. Faithful pastors who are dedicated, devoted, and determined. Faithful pastors who will, verse 16, keep a close watch on themselves and their teaching. And in and through these means, again, through faithful pastors that no one other than you will ever hear of, through lowly, faithful, weak, fledging pastors, God will actually save and sanctify his elect people. Now, if any of that trips you up, that's okay. I say it's okay because we want to be zealous for the glory of God. And I think any instinct that we have that pushes back against verse 16, Timothy saving anybody, I actually think that's a good instinct. I would just challenge you that we have to be willing to yield to God's word. Think, for example, with me of 1 Corinthians 9, 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Paul says this, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul did what Paul did evangelistically. Why? So that Paul could save some. Now, stop. Again, does Paul the champion of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Does Paul really think that he saves anyone? No. You know that and I know that. Christ and Christ alone. But Paul recognizes that God uses means. And so, in the context of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is willing in some contexts to forego some liberties that he has in the gospel if that means he might be able to smooth out some of the speed bumps that might otherwise slow people down in their coming to Christ. You see a similar flavor in Acts 26. Acts 26. Paul is standing before King Agrippa on trial. And as Paul is making his defense, he recounts the Lord Jesus' interception of him on the road to Damascus. Paul records in Acts 26 how he heard a voice, a strange voice, interrogate him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, eventually, Paul comes to the realization that this is Christ, his very enemy. But rather than destroying his enemy, what does Christ do? He forgives him. And he doesn't just forgive him, but he also commissions him. Catch this. In a matter of about five seconds, terrorist becomes a missionary. That's how powerful the gospel is. That's how strong Christ is. He takes this ISIS member and turns him into a Reformed Baptist like that. That's crazy. And this is what Christ said to Paul. Again, this missionary of about five seconds. You ready? Acts 26, beginning in verse 16. Acts 26, 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, 
For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to do those in which I will appear to you. Here it is. Listen now. (laughs) Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom, Christ says this to Paul, I am sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Now, zoom in a little bit. What is Christ sending Paul to do in verse 17? I am sending you to open their eyes. To which you and I ought to go, what? Paul is going to open their eyes? That's what the passage says. But of course, we know that Paul isn't literally going to save anyone, 1 Corinthians 9. And we also know that Paul can't actually open their spiritual eyes, Acts 26. Likewise, we know that Timothy won't save himself or his congregation, 1 Timothy 4. But God does use means. And one of the primary means that God uses is faithful pastors. As Philip Ryken has said, the spiritual destiny of any church is tied up with the spiritual destiny of its minister and his faithful proclamation of the gospel. So church, step back with me just for a moment. And as you do, I want you to see something of the portrait that is in front of us. What, what does this pastor look like? What is distinct about him? God words, God's word answers, the pastor is dedicated to holiness. He is devoted to scripture. And he is determined that his life and his lips match. This is his all-consuming passion. And this is his all-consuming passion because not only is this what Christ has called him to, but also through the pastor, Christ will call other people to himself. So I would just say this as we conclude. In a world that mocks and belittles pastors, let's kick against the goads a bit. We should love our pastors. We should encourage our pastors. We should pray for our pastors. And we should honor our pastors. Pastors should be esteemed highly. Consider Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, the ascended Christ says that he pours out gifts upon his church. And one of those gifts is the gift of pastors. And so in God's wise providence, it is through pastors that God actually works the grace of the gospel in our hearts. Let's go before, the God, let's go before God and give thanks. Our Father, we thank you for the long line of godly men who have filled this pulpit And we pray for generations and generations that you would continue to supply men, men who are men after your own heart. We pray for Pastor Justin. We pray for Dave as he is 
getting ready to conclude his elder training. We pray for young men here that in years to come will also fill this great role. We pray for your blessing upon them. We pray that through the faithful uh, ministry of pastors in this place, that this congregation would be healthy, that it would grow in depth and breadth, and that redeeming grace, both as we gather and scatter, would continue to be salt and light, that we would be a city set upon a hill, that we would be a lighthouse for the truth of Christ and for what it means to know you, our great Father. So we pray that as Christians, as pastors, as a congregation, that you would strengthen us in your word, that you would strengthen us in grace. We pray that you would do these things even now as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen.